You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to episode 211 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Last week, as y'all recall, we covered one of the epic marches of the Civil War as we talked about the movement of Federal General George Morgan's 7th Division from Cumberland Gap up through the rugged mountains of eastern Kentucky to the Ohio River. Meanwhile, about 200 miles to the west, after abandoning Munfordville on September 20, 1862, Braxton Bragg's Confederate Army of the Mississippi headed northeast 40 miles to Bardstown. Bragg expected to resupply his troops at Bardstown and link up with Kirby Smith's Confederate Army of Kentucky. It was a tough march to Bardstown, and not just because many of the rebel soldiers reportedly were without shoes by this point in the campaign and were going barefoot. The drought and heat added to the men's miseries, as did the feeling in the ranks that the army had missed a fantastic opportunity at Munfordville to deal Buell's Yankees a crippling blow. As you guys will recall, we said that at Munfordville, Bragg's Confederates had been in a fantastic tactical situation, standing between Buell and his supply base at Louisville, but unfortunately for the rebels, they themselves were in serious logistical trouble, and if they'd stayed at Munfordville more than a few days, Braxton Bragg's army would have started to starve. So Bragg had been forced to make the difficult decision to abandon Munfordville and march northeast to Bardstown, where, as Tracy said, he expected to resupply and link up with Kirby Smith. Lieutenant John Inglis of the 3rd Florida spoke for many in Bragg's army when he said, quote, We were vexed and not stopping the Federals, but Inglis insisted that the rebel soldiers were still, quote, eager to fight them. Despite the disappointment over the missed opportunity at Munfordville, the Confederates' spirits were lifted by their reception in Bardstown. The town's enthusiastic welcome of Bragg's men was similar to how Lexington had greeted Kirby Smith's troops. Lieutenant Inglis remembered how the army paraded through the town while Bragg watched it from the courthouse steps, along with his generals, Simon Bolivar Buckner, Leonidas Polk, and Patton Anderson. The young lieutenant's attention, however, wasn't focused solely on the top brass. He confided in his diary his observation that, quote, the ladies look so sweet. Bragg's troops set up camp so as to cover the various roads that led into Bardstown. 
Supplies sent over by Kirby Smith helped bring the Army back up to fighting trim, and Patrick Claiborne's division, which had been on detached duty with Smith, was absorbed back into Bragg's force. Despite the welcome break in Bardstown, several shadows now began to loom over the Rebels' Kentucky expedition. At the top of the list of Confederate concerns was the very obvious reluctance of male Kentuckians to join the Rebel Army. Bragg had brought 15,000 rifles with him into the Bluegrass State and expected to find plenty of demand for them, but the expected rush of recruits didn't materialize. The Federals' Camp Dick Robinson was renamed Camp Breckenridge, and Kentucky native Simon Bolivar Buckner was sent there to muster in recruits. But in spite of issuing a statewide appeal, there were only about 1,500 enlistments. Confederate General John C. Breckinridge and the Kentucky regiments of the Rebel Army's Orphan Brigade had been posted down in Louisiana, and now efforts to boost recruiting by transferring them to the Bluegrass State were fouled up by delays. And so when all was said and done here during the Rebels' 1862 Kentucky campaign, in the end, only about 5,000 Kentuckians joined the Confederate Army, and most of those went into the cavalry. This lack of commitment didn't go unnoticed in the Confederate ranks. Kirby Smith complained that the Kentuckians, quote, hearts are evidently with us, but their bluegrass and fat grass cattle are against us. Indeed, there was something to this theory, since Union authorities had issued several orders that made sure that Kentuckians who fought for the Confederacy risked having their property confiscated. And besides, with sizable federal forces in and around Louisville, many Kentuckians realized the campaign was far from over. Bragg and Kirby Smith had so far not assured the populace that the Confederates were there in the Bluegrass State to stay. Bragg's mood soured as he realized how hesitant Kentuckians were proving to be to join the Confederate Army. In fact, officers around Army headquarters began to notice that Bragg was developing an increasing dislike for all things Kentucky. Bragg's frustration came through in a message he sent to the War Department in Richmond on September 25th, in which he reported, quote, I regret to say we are sadly disappointed at the want of action by our friends in Kentucky. We have so far received no benefit to this army. We have 15,000 stand of arms and no one to use them. Unless a change occurs soon, we must abandon the garden spot of Kentucky to its selfishness. The love of ease and fear of financial loss are the sources of this evil. Kentucky and Tennessee are redeemed if we can be supported, but at least 50,000 men will be necessary, and a few weeks will decide the question. Should we have to retire, much in the way of supplies and morale will be lost, and the redemption of Kentucky will be indefinitely postponed, if not rendered impossible. Besides his growing disillusionment with Kentucky, the strain of holding down two jobs, that of commanding general and also chief of staff, was beginning to wear down Bragg. Attempting to wear both hats with their heavy responsibilities was proving too much, and in late September, Bragg appointed a Virginia officer, George W. Brent, as the Army's chief of staff. Another factor darkening Bragg's mood was the realization that his army's position at Bardstown offered few strategic advantages. 
At Bardstown, Bragg was 40 miles from Louisville and was in a good position to block any Federal advance from that city. But at the same time, Bragg was too far away to really threaten Louisville or disrupt the buildup of Federal forces there. Bragg's 30,000 men at Bardstown needed to be reinforced by Kirby Smith's 18,000 at Lexington in order to face Buell on something close to even odds. But Smith showed little sign of wishing to leave the vicinity of Lexington in order to link up with Bragg. Remember, one of the reasons Kirby Smith had invaded Kentucky was to exercise independent command and cover himself in glory. But the moment the two generals joined forces in the field, Bragg would assume formal command as senior officer. And, once that happened, Kirby Smith would no longer occupy center stage in his own little drama, but would have to play second fiddle to Braxton Bragg. And so, although Confederate forces controlled virtually all of central and eastern Kentucky, thus far there had been little actual coordination or cooperation of effort between Kirby Smith and Braxton Bragg, and as a result, the rebels were spread out and vulnerable to defeat in detail if the Federals could get their act together and assume the offensive. Bragg, without Kirby Smith, was too weak to confront Buell, And besides, Bragg assumed Buell would need weeks to refit and reorganize his army in Louisville. So Braxton Bragg decided to hit the pause button and consolidate Confederate gains up to that point. But what that meant, in reality, was that the Confederates were going on the defensive in Kentucky and passing the initiative to the Federals. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey, not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. 
You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. On the federal side, meanwhile, the veteran federal soldiers of Don Carlos Buell's Army of the Ohio had staggered into Kentucky's largest city over the course of four days, from September 25th to 28th, after the Confederates had abandoned Munfordville and left the road to Louisville wide open. Because of Kirby Smith's invasion of Kentucky and Braxton Bragg's subsequent march northward, in the space of one month's time, Buell's soldiers had been forced to withdraw 300 miles from the approaches to Chattanooga back to the Ohio River at Louisville without fighting a major battle and almost without firing a shot. That situation didn't sit well with the Union soldiers of the Army of the Ohio, especially coming after their frustrating summer of marching slowly toward Chattanooga. During the slow advance toward Chattanooga and then the withdrawal northward into Kentucky, many of the Yankees had worn out their uniforms and their shoes were falling apart, and to top it off, most hadn't been paid in months. New uniforms and some pay were available in Louisville, and many of the veteran federal soldiers took the opportunity to blow off some steam by visiting the local bars. Others, especially those men from southern Indiana, went home for a few days without permission. Not to put too fine a point on it, but the Army of the Ohio ceased to be a cohesive organized force for a short time after reaching Louisville but it came back together by September 30th with restored spirits. Buell's personal stock, however, was at an all-time low. Some of his subordinates thought that what was needed was a command change, and they made no secret of their views on the subject. It reached the point that General-in-Chief Henry Halleck sent a courier westward from Washington with orders relieving Buell and naming Major General George H. Thomas as his replacement. A West Pointer, a pre-war regular army officer, and the victor at the Battle of Mill Springs in January 1862, the 46-year-old Thomas was a Virginian who had chosen to remain loyal to the Union. However, Halleck's orders stipulated that they were not to take effect, quote, if General Buell should be found in the presence of the enemy preparing to fight a battle, end quote. The orders, in fact, arrived on September 29th, when the Army of the Ohio was still in the midst of resupplying and reorganizing at Louisville, and when Buell was planning a major offensive into central Kentucky against the Confederates. And so when he received Halleck's dispatch, Buell immediately moved to turn over command to Thomas. The only problem was, George Thomas refused to take over. Thomas wrote to Halleck, saying, quote, General Buell's preparations have been completed to move against the enemy, and I therefore respectfully ask that he may be retained in command. My position is very embarrassing, not being as well informed as I should be as commander of this army and on assumption of such a responsibility. Frustrated and irritated by Thomas's refusal to assume command, Halleck nevertheless didn't push the issue, and instead he informed Buell and Thomas that the relief orders were, quote, suspended, end quote, and confirmed that Buell would remain in command for the time being. All that meant, though, was that Buell would start off from Louisville to take the offensive against the Confederates with the prospect of relief hanging over his head. Yep, uh, fun stuff. At any rate, when the relief orders arrived, Buell was in the midst of reorganizing the Army of the Ohio's command structure for the upcoming campaign. 
the new recruits who had flooded into Louisville swelled the Army's ranks to 75,000 men, but many of them had only been in uniform long enough to receive the most very basic of training. Buell was well aware that the large number of greenhorns threatened to hamper the Army of the Ohio's ability to march quickly and fight effectively. In an attempt to improve this situation, Buell parceled out most of the rookie units among his veteran brigades, with three veteran units for each untested outfit. The exceptions to this policy were parts of the Army's 11th Division and the 10th Division. The 10th Division was made up entirely of green units and commanders. Don Carlos Buell managed to keep his job on September 29th, but that day he did lose an experienced subordinate. Bull Nelson had recovered from being wounded at the Battle of Richmond and was back on duty when the Army of the Ohio arrived in Louisville. Nelson's experience at Richmond had given him a poor opinion of troops from Indiana, and he made no secret of this dislike. This attitude grated on Brigadier General Jefferson C. Davis, who took exception to Bull Nelson's very vocal scorn of the Union soldiers from Davis's home state. The two men got into a shouting match, and Nelson packed Davis off to Cincinnati under arrest on September 25th. Department Commander Horatio Wright had more important things to worry about, so he released Davis from arrest and sent him back to Louisville and the Army of the Ohio. Davis returned to Louisville with Indiana Governor Levi Morton, who happened to be going there on an, in- on an inspection trip. On the morning of September 29th, Davis, Morton, and several aides ran into Bull Nelson in the lobby of the Galt House, a hotel in downtown Louisville. The two generals exchanged words, and a contemptuous Nelson slapped Davis. As Bull walked away, Davis, embarrassed and furious, grabbed a pistol from an aide and followed Nelson upstairs. After some more heated words, Davis shot Bull Nelson in the chest. Nelson collapsed and died an hour later, and Davis was placed under arrest. But at a stroke, with Nelson's death, Don Carlos Buell had lost one of his most experienced commanders. Later that day, Buell announced the reorganized command structure for the upcoming campaign. For the first time in its history, the Army of the Ohio would be comprised of corps rather than just divisions. The Corps would be numbered 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, and each would contain about 25,000 men to include infantry, artillery, and cavalry. With the threat of relief now hanging over his head, Buell now considered George Thomas a threat, so rather than giving him a Corps, Buell instead elevated Thomas to the pretty much meaningless position of 2nd in command of the Army. Command of 1st Corps went to 31-year-old Major General Alexander McCook, one of Buell's most most experienced subordinates. McCook was a colorful character and was one of the 14 members of his family, the Fighting McCooks of Ohio, to serve in the Union Army during the war. In fact, just a month earlier, in August, Alexander's older brother, Robert, had been mortally wounded during an incident with Confederate guerrillas in Tennessee. McCook's Corps contained Brigadier General Joshua Sill's 2nd Division, Brigadier General Lovell Rousseau's 3rd Division, and Brigadier General James S. Jackson's 10th Division. All three men were experienced commanders. Rousseau and Jackson were Kentuckians, while Sill was from Ohio. 
43-year-old Major General Thomas L. Crittenden received command of Second Corps. Unlike the fighting McCooks, the Civil War had torn apart the Crittenden clan. Crittenden's home was in Louisville, and he was an old friend of Simon Bolivar Buckner. Thomas's older brother, George, was a major general in the Confederate Army, although he would soon resign in disgrace due to his alcoholism. George and Thomas's father was the senior U.S. Senator from Kentucky, John J. Crittenden, who in December 1860 had unsuccessfully tried to broker a last-ditch compromise between North and South to stave off secession. Crittenden's Second Corps divisions were all led by experienced brigadiers. William Soy Smith led the 4th Division, Horatio Van Cleve had the 5th Division, and Thomas J. Wood commanded the 6th Division. Soy Smith and Van Cleve were Northerners, while Wood was a Kentuckian and boyhood best friend of Simon Bolivar Buckner. Bull Nelson was originally slated to lead Third Corps, but since he was uh, recently deceased, that meant Buell had to come up with someone else. Anyway, that corps' three divisions were the 1st under Brigadier General Alvin Sheff, the 9th under Brigadier General Robert B. Mitchell, and the new 11th under Brigadier General Philip H. Sheridan. All three were aggressive officers and had led divisions before, except for Sheridan. Mitchell and Sheridan were, were Ohioans, while Sheff was a Polish immigrant who had served in the Austrian army. Sheff was the obvious choice to command the corps, but there was bad blood between him and Buell, and so Buell, casting about for someone else, settled on 40-year-old Acting Major General Charles C. Gilbert, who, as you may recall, had until very recently been Captain Gilbert, before his very unusual promotion by Department Commander Horatio Wright. Many of the Army of the Ohio's leaders were in their post for the first time, but nevertheless, most of the newly installed officers settled into their jobs with little problem, although several officers did have rough starts. For example, in First Corps, Division Commander Jackson and one of his brigadiers, William Terrell, drilled the men for hours in high temperatures and had a grand review under the hot sun that resulted in numerous heat-related casualties and four deaths. And then Gilbert enjoyed micromanaging his command, stepping on many of his officers' toes in the process. In addition, his profanity and arrogance alienated many Third Corps Third Corps soldiers, and as a result, officers and men set out on the new campaign with little faith in their commander. Having reorganized the Army of the Ohio, the next question for Buell was what to do with it. Staying on the defensive and allowing the Confederates to consolidate their position in Kentucky was out of the question, so the only real choice was to advance. Two options presented themselves to Buell as he looked at a map. One was a movement east to Frankfurt, the state capital, and then to Lexington in the heart of the Bluegrass region. The second option was a march southeast to Bardstown and then on into central Kentucky. Buell knew that the main Confederate supply depot was at Camp Breckenridge, and their line of communication back to Tennessee was by way of the Wilderness Road. So if Buell marched into central Kentucky, that move would threaten the road and force the rebels to protect their lifeline. And if the rebels fell back to protect their line of communication, 
they would have to abandon Frankfurt and Lexington anyway, so the Federals could reoccupy those places without firing a shot. Based on that line of thinking, Buell made his decision. George Thomas later described the plan in simple terms, saying, quote, The object was to overtake the enemy, fight, and destroy him if possible, either by disastrous defeat or by cutting off his retreat. Buell divided his army into four columns. Sill's 2nd Division was detached from 1st Corps and ordered east toward Frankfurt and Lexington as a feint. A detachment of rookie units under Colonel Ebenezer Dumont would go along, bringing Sill's strength up to 20,000 men. The other 55,000 troops of the Army of the Ohio would form three columns and move toward Bardstown and beyond, looking for battle. Buell hoped the Confederates would either be snared by the advancing Federal columns and defeated in battle, or they would so fear for the safety of their line of communication that they fell back into Tennessee. While Buell made his preparations to take the offensive, Braxton Bragg turned over command at Bardstown to Leonidas Polk and rode to Lexington. After meeting with Kirby Smith and assuming formal command of all Confederate forces in Kentucky, Bragg considered his options. Since Richard Hawes, the pro-Confederate claimant to Kentucky's governorship, and some of his followers had tagged along with the rebel army and were on hand, and since the state capital of Frankfurt just happened to be in rebel hands, Bragg decided to stage a ceremony there and install Hawes and a provisional legislature. At the very least, Bragg reasoned, this would allow the Confederates to force reluctant Kentuckians to join the rebel army, since the state would then ostensibly be subject to the Confederacy's conscription law. Hawes proved a willing partner in Bragg's scheme, and an installation ceremony was scheduled to take place in Frankfurt on October 4th. Meanwhile, though, on October 1st, Buell's Army of the Ohio began marching from Louisville. Remember, Bragg had assumed it would take Buell weeks to resupply and reorganize his army, but Buell was on the march again after spending less than a week in the city. And so the events that took place over the next 11 days would decide the fate of the Bluegrass State. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Creating a Confederate Kentucky, The Lost Cause and Civil War Memory in a Border State by Anne E. Marshall. I think I, in particular, found this a really interesting book since it shed some light on something from my college days that back then I'd found kind of unusual. You see, when I was in school in Kentucky, it just kind of happened that most of my good friends were from Georgia and Alabama, and with me being from Pennsylvania, we'd have some good discussions about the Civil War. But one thing we all noticed was that to listen to some Kentuckians talk, you'd think Kentucky had been the most Confederate of all the Confederate states back in the Civil War. Well, my friends from Alabama and Georgia noticed this since they were really from former Confederate states. And I noticed this, uh, well, because as a history major and as a Yankee, I noticed it. But, of course, Kentucky hadn't been a Confederate state, so we thought all of this modern-day posturing a bit odd. 
Now, there were Kentuckians who fought in the, in the Confederate Army during the Civil War, like the famous Orphan Brigade. But as we indicated here in this episode, it's not as if Kentucky took the opportunity in 1862 to rise up and join the Confederacy when they had the chance. As you guys will recall, after their initial attempt in 1861 at remaining neutral failed, Kentucky remained solidly on the Union side throughout the rest of the Civil War. So, although my college friends and I didn't know it at the time, I've since heard that the curious phenomena amongst some modern-day Kentuckians that we observed had already led to the joke that Kentucky was the only state to wait until the Civil War was over before joining the Confederacy. Anyway, that's a long-winded build-up to the reason behind our recommendation of this book. Uh, again, it's Creating a Confederate Kentucky, the Lost Cause and Civil War Memory in a Border State by Anne E. Marshall. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you join us again next time for the first shots of the Battle of Perryville. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.